some important changes as we look ahead to the season, including the ballparks. But what do those changes mean? I'll ask Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM about that and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 18th. It's show number five of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host. Please excuse the stuffy nasal voice. I'm in the middle of a nagging cold. You might want to put surgical masks between your ears and your headphones, but you will want to listen today because we have another great Tuesday Tout Edition for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM about park effects, about projections and valuations, about his player rankings, his boons and banes, and more. It's another big Tuesday Tout edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's Z time. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday edition, part one of our interview with our feature guest expert, Todd Zola. From Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM, longtime friend of the show, Todd. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. Been a while. You uh, you got the shows going off on a on a great start this season with a couple of great guests. I'm glad to uh, glad to be joining the crew. And we should say right off the bat, you you've been uh, quite busy as a commentator on uh, audio profiles of one kind or another, podcasts, and on Sirius XM. Yeah, we're starting. We've started the serious shows, and uh, it's kind of cool. We're doing a a show on the network, not not just a fantasy show. Myself and Clay Link from RotoWire, they give us an hour to talk on the Saturday MLB Network radio show, which is it's kind of fun. And uh, you say it's not on the as part of the fantasy process, but is it a fantasy related show? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a fantasy show, but on the on the mainstream. Radio network. This is. It's, uh, actually, I was talking to Jeff Erickson about this because he's going to be filling in for me when I'm in labor in a couple of weeks. Jeff started, uh, you know, well before the Fantasy Network was a uh, was a, was a thing ten years ago. They're they're advertising their ten year anniversary. Jeff was doing baseball on the MLB Network radio, so he was saying he's he's going to enjoy getting back on the network because that's where it all started. Right, and for people who don't know, SiriusXM has basically two baseball-related channels, or one and a half. Uh, There's a baseball network channel, which is all baseball all the time, and then there's the fantasy channel, which includes fantasy baseball among fantasy football and fantasy NASCAR and fantasy cribbage and whatever else is going on out there. And to be honest, a lot of of it now is is gambling because it's now tied into the same analysis, so it, it is what it is. Um, not just DFS anymore. It's just the way of the world. We have to accept it and and do you know find our own little niche and go with it. Well, true enough. The Supreme Court said y'all can gamble in the United States, and uh, and people are taking to it with a certain amount of gusto. And you have to imagine that, given the amount of touting and uh, recommended bets and stuff that were going on when it was illegal, you could only expect that it was going to probably increase when it became legal. Yeah, and you know, from a, a fantasy point of view, if it brings more eyeballs and money and interest into the, at, at this point, it's now under the same umbrella. 
and it helps you know it helps me because the websites I work for are now have another stream of income. I'm not going to complain. Well, it is fantasy baseball season, Todd. Uh, drafts have been going. I know probably your first one would have been in November at First Pitch Arizona. You're part of the XFL, the experts leagues that have been drafting in Arizona for years. But how many leagues have you drafted so far? Well, actually, PD, I do, uh, I do a league every year. It's called the Premature Draftulation League that drafts. It's an NFBC satellite that starts drafting the final weekend of the MLB season. I I co I co manage a team with our colleague Derek Van Riper. We get together and we uh, we do we draft a, a real NFBC team. So that was the first. That was that was done, and I've done a, uh, only a, a couple leagues since then. I've done a ton of best balls, which I'm doing a condensed roster style of best ball. So it's it, it's it's a shorter draft. Um, but right now I think it's around four four. And it, that's far fewer than my normal. I don't want to say quota, but normal amount at this time. When you say a condensed roster, uh, Todd, how condensed is it? It's usually a fifty-man roster, isn't it? No, this is this is best ball. Uh, it's 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 called baseball tens. They're under the same umbrella as the NFBC, the Sports Hub Tech, but they're not branded NFBC. And what they are are 32, 32 uh, roster spots: catcher, first, second, third, short two outfielders, a utility, and four pitchers. So there's no middle, there's no corner, there's only two outfielders. So the, 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 not so much the ADP, but the, the rankings are similar to other leagues, but without the, since it's best ball, without the corner, without the middle, uh, there's, there's the, the, the roster composition matters. I mean, in, in, you, you could draft, I don't know, uh, Trevor Story and Trey Turner in a roto laughed and just I'm going to put the guy in the middle, but you shouldn't do that in the best ball because there's only one spot. Well, they can go utility, but you know, so it's but it, to me, um, what I like to call it is I'm a, I'm a it, for draft nicks on a reduced budget, which is sort of what I am. So I did the drafting that I like to do, but they're called baseball tens because the ten stands for the entry fee, and uh, so anyway. And how many leagues do you think you're going to end up playing overall once the dust has settled? Yeah, you know what? I will probably add about 10 more, including a couple of staff leagues and a couple home leagues and, of course, the labor and tout coming up and TGFBI. So I'll probably add 10 more. I, I'm cutting back on, I kind of alluded to it a moment ago, cutting back on some of the high stakes that I've done in the past. So, um, yeah, I'll probably add 10 or 12 more. Getting back to that league you drafted in October, who did you get? Uh, was it a, a straight snake draft format, and how, how did you go about drafting with so little information about 2020 so relatively early in 2019? Yeah, well, that's that's what the beauty of it is, because it's pure. It's without ADP. It's, it's You're going off of as much gut as you are or anything else, and I was actually looking at it the other day, and a lot of, you know... The, a lot of the players that Derek and I happen to get, their current ADP, you know, I hate the word, you know, value or bargain, but people would be saying, that's a great value pick, because uh, Zach Gallen and, and, and Brandon Woodruff, a couple of pitchers that are now, as they say, have helium, we got later, because they hadn't picked up said helium yet. So, it's uh, it's uh, it, it, that's one of the reasons I like it. I mean, people just draft who they want off their gut, 
there's a lot of recency bias because that's just what happens. Yuli Gurriel went very early, and you know now that you know the different things are coming out. So it's uh, I do it as much for the entertainment because it's a great group, and you know the fun just doing the draft with these people, and you get a really a really early look at the player pool because this is you know I, I'm just starting projections at that point. So for me, it, it helps give an idea what the mar- what the early market looks. And I'm not saying I move, you know, I project to the market, but it just to get a feel for what people are thinking, uh, who I need to look at. If the if a, if an, it gives me an early battle test of my rankings, and it's more to you know what it would do is if if there's an outlier, I will spend more time. You know, why did why did so and so draft this particular person here? Am I missing something? And often it's just 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 recency bias, but it gives me an, a, a way to battle test very early the uh, the numbers, and then I'm able to do it when the mock start the magazine mocks start to come out. But um, because I get my stuff out so early, November first, it gives me something anyway to to use as a control. And by getting your stuff out, you mean your Masters Ball projections at mastersball.com? Yeah, I, I, I launch in November just because, like I mentioned, the NFBC, they are launching earlier and earlier. I like to get ahead of it, and best balls, too, are becoming the thing. So try to try to get it out a little early. It was a little bit difficult this year because, as you know, we had the first pitch in the middle of the month and not the end of the month. Right. So I, as I lost a few days of, of time I'd normally be projecting, but... It also gave me, a, you know, like talking to some people, it gave me a, an earlier idea on some of the next level analysis on certain players that I was able to incorporate that I might not gotten to, you know, I would have had a normally I get I get home from the, the forum and I need to look I need to relook at these ten guys because you know Sarah said this or Paul Spore said that or Gene McCaffrey and I were talking about this and I was able to do that before the launch this year. Todd, a lot of fantasy owners misunderstand or misapply park effects, and this is something that you wrote a column about recently at Rotowire in your Z Files uh, series of columns. Park effects is the art or science, and I guess there's some dispute over whether it's a little of both. Uh, but what we're trying to do is put player skills into the actual game context where these guys play a lot of their games, and especially where pitchers pitch a lot of their games. And before we talk about how this year's numbers might have changed, in general, how are park factors calculated? All right, so the idea of – actually, I, before I even get into it, because I, I, I don't want to forget about this, I just want to point out that there's a lot of really cool work being done on the StatCast data to try to come up with another way to do a, – a better way to do park factors to flesh out some of the bias, which I'm going to talk about. So before I, I want to acknowledge the fact that there's a, there's some pretty, some really smart people doing some really smart things, and maybe this time next year we'll be, we'll be talking about how I'm changing my approach to park factors because of this data. But currently, the conventional means is just to look at the, the, the outcomes, the, the, what's, what, what happened, and you, the idea is you want to get rid of the, or flesh out the, the quality of the home team's offense and de- uh, offense and pitching. It doesn't all get fleshed out, but you want to flesh out as much as you can. So what what you do is you take whatever stat you're looking at and you add up the home team's numbers and you add up the visiting team's numbers, which basically when you're 
downloading stats. It's what the pitchers gave up, the home team pitchers gave up on home. So the numerator is, you know, the numerator is what happened at, at home by the offense and by, by the home team and the visiting team. And the denominator is what happened on the road uh, by the by the team you're you're doing and the 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 home team at the time, the the host team. And this gets rid of the quality because a good team is also going to hit homers on the road, so the denominator is big. And a good pitch, a good quality pitching staff is going to keep runs or home runs or hits or doubles, whatever the stat is, down home and on the road. Um, what it doesn't do is it doesn't flesh out the uh, normal five. It's now even less. This is something I think Gene McCaffrey's talking about. There's a home field advantage, which is which is decreasing over the past few years. Doesn't flesh that out. That's kind of baked into all of them. But that's the that's the idea there. And you you do it on it. You can literally do it on every stat. It's not just runs and home runs like we, we hear about, but strikeouts and walks and even errors can be. Different parks have different uh, leans towards errors. Foul pop-ups huge. So any stat that anything that's recorded, you can come up with a park factor. One common perception, Todd, is that there are parks that are strong for offense and weak for offense, and of course there's a corresponding strength and weakness of pitching, but you make the point that really park effects can't be quite as blunt as that, especially with regard to home runs and runs scored. And something some people have trouble getting their heads around is that how can a park simultaneously be strong for home runs but not for runs, or vice versa? Right. Now, the way to think about this is it, we think about it in terms of home runs and runs. And, and this is, I, as I was, uh, I haven't actually written about this yet, and it's, it's going to be the next time I do this piece. So this is kind of debuting this line of thought. If you don't think about it in runs and runs, think about it in terms of home runs and hits, because hits are what lead to the runs. It's, it's the extra hits is to what why you score more runs. And now when you think about how a park can be favorable for home runs, but maybe not for hits, now it makes more sense. And that, that's the key. So you, there, there are reasons for that. Um, one of the keys is when a home run, when a fly ball does not leave the park, it's converted to an out much more frequently than a ground ball finds a hole, you know, than a ground ball is a hit. The batting average of balls in play on fly balls it's much lower than that on ground balls so if if you, if there's a park that is good for homers but is small and therefore the majority of fly balls are going to be caught well then that's going to reduce hits and in, in in a small park not only that the outfielders can play a little more shallow and maybe cut off some line drives so there's how there's a way that a park can be good for homers but not so good for base hits then there are some parks that are good for both and uh, a park like Coors Field the ball carries but it's also so darn big that there's so much more expanse for the balls to land safely so that's that's kind of that's that's the reason why Coors Field is actually a better runs park than it is a home runs park. There are there are venues that are almost at a par with Coors Field as far as home runs go. Nothing is even close as far as runs go. So that's the key. And then and the, the thing about it is, there's a lot of parks that are 
that there's a, a misperception. Yankee Stadium plays fairly pitcher friendly with respect to runs, but as we know, it's it's you know it's pop ups go out the go out to right field, go over the fence. So there are some quirky parks. Fenway Park is poor for home runs, but think about the hits. It's got the huge right field, so balls can fall in, and it's got that wall which a couple of guys can reach out and touch. So it just you know the wall turns fly balls into doubles or singles, so there's just more hits. It's great for hits, but not great for homers. So when you look at all of this stuff, what's your advice on how fantasy owners can understand park effects and apply them for fantasy purposes? See, yeah, so it's interesting because this is especially important in today's game because, well, first with DFS and also a lot of leagues are now, and maybe not the audience, maybe not the audience we're talking to, but I think I think there's a lot of daily leagues in the audience we're talking to, too, where I don't mean DFS, but leagues where you change on a daily basis. The parks matter, but they are, they are further down on the list of matchup, uh, check the, the checklist of matchup, you know, for matchups. Quality of opponent is, is, you know, the quality of the pitcher you're facing or the quality of the batter is, is still the most important. Parks matter at the extremes especially. But, a you know, a good offense is going to score runs in a pitcher's park. So, you know, you don't want to downgrade a guy. Well, he's not going to get runs in RBI. Well, yeah, the offense is really good. A good offense will still score runs anywhere. So we don't want to overrate park factors on a short sample basis it is it is a factor it's just not the the most important factor it's you know maybe you know the bigger the bigger application could be the a big picture seasonal leagues how a player will will perform at least on paper in a new venue now this has to go with caveats because not every player plays linearly linearly to the park so you have to use your best judgment but you know, the, the, to me, and I and I know Baseball HQ does this as well. We, you know, in the spreadsheet of the engine, whatever the whatever the the, the process of, of of projections are, there is a, you know, a a table with all the park factors. You enter the player's team, and the projection changes because it's pulling in a different factor that goes into the algorithm. Is there an adjustment made on a team-by-team basis for the division that they're in? Because the the schedule is so heavily weighted to teams in your own division. So if you're assessing uh, Tampa's team, for example, pitchers or hitters, you look at Tampa's home park, of course, because they play 81 games there. But there's a disproportionate amount of games played in Toronto, New York, Boston, uh, and Baltimore, which seems to be kind of, uh, they all seem to be pretty good runs parks, and I haven't got the figures in front of me, but it seems like a lot of runs get scored in those parks, partly because of the quality of the batting that goes on, but also partly because of the parks themselves. So does your projection engine incorporate the idea that NL West teams play in a lot of, you know, pretty run-suppressing sort of environments, whereas AL East teams play in a lot of parks that boost runs or play, play positively? Mine does, <laughs> and uh, I think I think you may have known that because I think you edited the article that I wrote for Baseball HQ about it. Um, mine, I, I call I, I use what I call composite park factors, and I, I don't know who else does or doesn't or has their own way of doing it. But just for the very reason you just mentioned, the the assumption when when we use a park factor, and I think Fangraphs presents their park factors, they cut them in half. 
the reason being when you apply a you know, when you apply a park factor in this numerical sort of manner, it's only you should only apply it to the team the players' home games. So if a if a park increases homers by 20 percent, it's only going to and a player is supposed to hit 20 homers in a supposed to well projected to hit 20 homers in a neutral environment. You don't take the 20 and increase it by 20 percent. You take 10, half of them, and increase it by 20 percent. So you get you know 12 to so you get 22 total homers. And the the way to do that is don't use 20%, use 10%. Just take the 20 times 10%, you should get the same 22. But that assumes that the away parks are neutral, that the sum aggregate of all the away parks are neutral. I don't make that assumption. So I when I, I figure out the team's park factor, and then the schedules are available. Well, you know, there's a available in like what, August or September of the previous season. Download that, play some Excel games. And I'm able to come out with what I call a composite park factor, and it my my I don't assume a hundred. Uh, for me, it is what it is on the other end, and, and they're not hugely different. And sometimes you might not even notice it. Round off sort of takes care of it, but I I do it it because you know because I can, and try to might as well be as accurate as, as possible. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Rotowire, and uh, uh, Todd and Sirius XM, I should say. Todd, uh, you had a in in the uh, column that you wrote about park factors. You did point to three uh, situations in Major League Baseball where the park factors will have changed by the time this season starts. Uh, and the first one is, of course, an entirely new ballpark in Texas. How can we know how that new ballpark is going to play until we actually see it in action? Uh, what kind of assumptions are you? Well, we don't. So what we're making some assumptions, and we're also using some some science uh, here, in that the couple of the factors that go into, other than just plain you know dimensions, some of the uh, elements that go into how a park plays are weather and the conditions and the temperature and the humidity and, and wind and that sort of thing. And the key with the new Globe Life venue uh, is that it's got a roof, a retractable roof, and we don't know how often it will be open or shut. Those that play, I mentioned daily games before, one of the things we do need to consider is whether Miller Park, the roof will be open or closed, because I mentioned it is at the extremes, it does matter. Um, we don't know, I, th I guess we're assuming that if Texas is going to have a roof, that it's pretty, you know, even in April, it's pretty darn hot down there, so I'm, I'm assuming the roof's going to be closed a lot. Anybody that plays DFS knows it seems like, you know, every other night, if not every, every you know, every three out of every four nights, there's the threat of rain. So, it seems to me the Texas roof's going to be closed just about all the time, which means the heat, heat and humidity that affect the flight of a ball it's not there. And you can actually do the math. And it, again, giving the old credit where credit is due. Baseball HQ subscribers should check out Chris Olson's piece on this. He wrote a piece, uh, I think maybe a month ago, where he, he consulted with some some scientists and some meteorologists to get you know a, a more exact number. But you can do the math and estimate the reduced distance that a ball will travel without the heat and humidity that was present in the, the old venue. So that's one way. Uh, the wind, the 
this this is this is a little bit more narrative than 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 science. Well, at least at least doing the math. But the there was a wind tunnel that was in the old Globe Life Park that should not be in the in the new in the new Globe Life Field. Same sponsor. They just changed park to field. Um, and the the end result is you know we can't pinpoint it and park factors are hugely variant anyway, but it's 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 I say safe to say because I'm you know confident saying it that it will play more pitcher friendly exactly where it lands we're not sure it was sort of like when the old when the humidor was added to Chase Field did the math and felt comfortable saying it would do the job and there would be fewer runs and fewer homers and it did we didn't you know. Didn't know exactly what the numbers would be, but at least we felt safe. So everybody has to make their own judgment. I don't know what what you folks are doing, but I'm 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 adding I'm I'm overriding the park factor for Texas, and I'm making it just a little bit hitter friendly because um, the dimensions are still they're still fairly hitter friendly. There, it's not exactly the same as the old park. It's a little little deeper here, a little shallower there. But if I recall correctly, the fences are lower. Which, uh, which I, th- I think is great, just because you get those those games or home run saving catches, which are cool. I think every new park should have to have an eight foot fence to lo- to allow those the outfielders to snare the ball to bring the home runs back. But neither here nor there. But um, it's an assumption, and it's it's actually a pretty major one, because you know Texas has got some intri- intriguing pitching if if the park plays more pitcher friendly. The park in Miami is not new, but it's going to look pretty new with some important structural changes. Todd, what are the Marlins changing about their park, and what do you foresee are the fantasy effects of those changes? So the Marlins are bringing in the fence in uh, center, center. Okay, I'm confusing you. So the Marlins are bringing the fence in center to right, so probably half the park. They're bringing it in around five feet. And I don't think, I don't know that, there, that there's a, other than making the distance shorter, there's no sort of ancillary reasons. It, the park is becoming a bit more symmetrical. It's, as we know, it's not only a big park, but it mentions some of the elements that affect how a park plays. Miami's actually below sea level. And one of the, one of the factors is altitude, which is what makes Coors Field so good, Arizona. To a certain extent, SunTrust in in Atlanta. These are some of the higher above sea level. Miami is below sea level, not a ton, but it's below sea level, and the um, the, the balls don't carry as much, even though it's hot, etc. You know, these every, everything gets fact. You know, different factors, push pull, whatever. The uh, the altitude matters, so it's not going to. You know, I don't think we're now looking at a, a bandbox. However, you know, if they're five feet, ten feet closer, or five feet clo- fences are closer, there, at least on paper, should be more home runs in Marlins Park this year. And finally, the Giants are also making some changes to their park. What are those changes and what will the effects be there? Yeah, see, the Giants are actually doing, they're, they're moving the bullpens. The, the bullpens have been down the the the, side, the uh, foul territory, so they're they're moving the bullpens, and and by doing so, they need the room, so their fence from Triples Alley, well it's well it's actually a little further than that, from left center field to right center field, and it's 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 they're leaving Triples Alley, but the, the fence is coming in, and 
again, one of the best pitchers parks. A few more home. It's still going to be. It's still going to take a shot, but a few more home runs. And because the park is, because the center field fence goes straight across, and it's it's not you know tapered or not so much rounded. Center field should be shallower, relatively speaking, than other parks. It it it, it because the the way the the fence goes straight, the the gaps are huge. Triples Alley, especially, but um, yeah, again, San Francisco should give up a few more home runs to right field, but not so many that you're going to declare it a, a hitter's ballpark by any means. No, at least on paper, you know, we, we don't know how these things play, and even though San Francisco is not quite as exaggerated as a place like Fenway Park, where Pesky Pole is supposedly 300 feet down the line, some people question. If it's even that far, um, you know, I, I mean, you know, other things aside, uh, that that Bonds guy was able to hit home runs out of out of at the time was a three com at the time, uh, you know, then AT&T and now Oracle. He was more of a pull hitter and it's it's hitting him down the line and he hit the splash balls as well. But he was able to take advantage of the, the down the line. It's a little bit closer uh, a down the line hitter is is to. Is, is, is going to be able to hit home runs in, in, in that park. But it's the guys that are the gap-to-gap hitters. Um, it's narrative. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a subjective opinion. But, darn, I wish he wasn't in the, you know, in the 30s now. Brandon Belt, if you, if you look at his spray charts, looks like he could gain a few homers. I mean, he's a guy who has been, you know, brought down by his venue over the years you know he's now there's there's now other reasons why he's the power could be waning but you know in a in an AL it's not so much a mix but in an NL only league he may be a guy where out you know two three four home runs more than if you just look at the his line and just say that it's the parks the same and and don't make an adjustment at least on paper he could hit a couple extra homers this year and where every homer counts it could matter so you know some people like names and examples, and it's just spe- speculation. But I like Brennan Belt to do a little better than the past, relatively speaking. And I, I like Brian Anderson in Miami because looking at his his spray charts, he has opposite field power. So if the fence in the opposite field is brought in, Anderson to me is a guy that you know even if you know two or three extra projected homers and real homers makes a difference. Great stuff, Todd. Uh, let's take a break here. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and we'll talk about your uh, recent articles about valuation theory. Very interesting stuff. Stand by. Absolutely. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball and Rotowire and appears regularly on Sirius XM Radio. He'll be back in a minute while I run out and steam my sinuses and then bring you up to date on why I like to call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Keepers column, analyst Brad Coleman looks at young pitchers in the American League for 2020, including his cornerstones, building blocks, and support pieces. We have a cavalcade of playing time tomorrow columns looking at rosters across the divisions, starting with Dan Marcus looking at rosters in the National League Central, including plentiful options in the Cubs outfield, the Pittsburgh catching situation, and the Reds bullpen. And speaking of bullpens, in the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at 20 Lima options for the coming season. 
in alternative gaming. Former Baseball HQ radio analyst Matt Beagle has a simulation draft guide for 2020. And in the big hurt, injury analyst Matthew Cederholm looks at possible 2020 effects from 2019 injuries. And those are just five articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time, plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. Add it all up, and you'll know why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And we still have that special HQ Radio offer, by the way. Use the promo code PATRICK, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, all capital letters. At checkout, get a 10% discount on your site subscription and your copies of the Baseball Forecaster Annual and the Minor League Baseball Analyst Annual. That's 10% off subscriptions and books with the promo code PATRICK at checkout. Baseball HQ, already a great deal for fantasy owners, now 10% even better with the promo code PATRICK at checkout. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for part two of our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure once more to be joined by Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. Todd, welcome back. Good to be back with you, PD. In a recent article at Rotowire, you discussed at some length the flaws and limitations of valuation theory. This is something that I've been talking about a lot in this early part of the preseason. The first thing you mentioned was that there's this idea that all projections are roughly 70% accurate, but you said uh, there's an issue there. What is it? Well, the issue is I don't know exactly what that means. And maybe you can tell me, you know, maybe we can reverse this. I PD, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know if it means that there's an error bar of 30% around a projection. I don't know if it means that 70% of projections are pretty close and 30% are just way off. But the number 70% has been bandied about as, as a – you know, as a as a project as a uh, you know evaluation of, of accuracy. At this point, I don't care. I just know that they're not accurate. So it, I don't care if it's 70, 75, or 60, whatever the number may be. There's you know there's there's a margin of error, and um, so in, when we're talking valuation, I'm talking about valuation theory being flawed, even considering the inaccuracy of projections if we know projections if we were magic ball not even so much end of season but if we if we a genie gives us the projections of what's going to happen the following season and we put them through our engine cal our, our, our calculator whatever it might be they're still not right they're still not at, and it seems like well we know what it should be should we know exactly the the value no we don't there's flaws in the theory yeah, that's what I've thought too. Is that it's it's an interesting double conundrum, isn't it? That we start by generating these uh, these projections based on you know legitimate sort of calculations and observation of patterns and trends, and it usually comes down with some kind of weighted three-year average with adjustments made, as we talked about. But basically, the projections are inherently inaccurate. And then we build a dollar value onto the projections, which are already inaccurate, and the method of actually assigning the dollar value may be inaccurate. So it's by the time you get a dollar value, it's it it potentially is do, doubly inaccurate. Right, and I think everybody accepts projections inaccurate. I don't know that people accept or even understand or realize that the you know these engines, whatever it might be are inaccurate and and, and and I've known it and I've alluded to it 
and I finally, you know, I finally decided let's let's put this out there. Uh, I've talked about SGP being inaccurate for years, but let's talk about the inaccuracy of the flaws or the limitations of the other ones. Just let's get them all out there, and th th once we're out there, we can take a step back. All right, we know this. What does this mean? How do you know? Are they useless? What do you? How do you use it? Incorporate it into drafting, into auctioning, and you know we'll, we'll talk about it. But that's uh, that was sort of the genesis of it. In order to know how to apply it, you got to know the deficiencies. Well, before we go on, Todd, you mentioned SGP. It's one of the three primary or conventional uh, dollar valuation methods. Standings gains points is what it stands for. Uh, there's also percentage value method, which PVM is the abbreviation, and Z-scores, which is the latest entrant in the, in the field. Let's start quickly describing how these things work. What, how do SGPs work? Okay, very quickly, it's just standings gains points, where uh, if, if, the, if it takes five home runs to gain a point in the standings and a player hits 30 home runs on paper he just earned you six points um, and the the six is kind of his is, is, is the SGP well the six of the SGP but he earned six SGPs you calculate the SGPs across the category you throw them into a, a, a similar pool, so it's just the number of SGP, regardless where they came from. And you know, we're doing some some manipulation to get to the the, the, the field to the right size, and to have the money work, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Replacement, um, a, a player is uh, awarded value based upon the percent contributions of his SGP. So if, if there's 10 and the pool is 1,000, so 10 divided by 1,000 times the amount of money allocated is how much that player is worth. So um, that's generally, in a nutshell, what SGP is all about. And PVM, percentage valuation method, basically skips the standing gains part and just says uh, there's so many home runs going to be hit this year. This guy's got you know 4% of them. Therefore, he gets 4% of the home run money. Is that not right? Pretty much, yeah. Again, some some back, you know, in the back adjustment for replacement and 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 stuff that I kind of alluded to uh, with with catching, yeah, uh, yes. But that's basically it, the percentage of the pool. And finally, there's Z score, and this is a more recent entrant in the valuation race. Uh, how does Z score work? It's got nothing to do with Z for Zola. No, it doesn't. Uh, and I'm not even. I think it's it's more. I think it's been used for a long time, but it's just more people are talking about it. It's standard deviation in that uh, you compare it against an average player, replacement player, whatever it might be, and whatever the statistic is, the number of standard deviations above or below the the baseline. That's instead of giving an SGP, for instance, that's what the currency is. Well, I don't use the word currency because that implies value, but that's the measuring stick. So you go across all the categories, hitting and pitching. The number of SGP, uh, the number of standard deviations a player is above or below, whatever that baseline comparison is, uh, he's awarded per category. They get thrown together, and then again doing the manipulations as far as reserve and I'm sorry, number of players and replacement, etc. The percentage of standard deviations or Z-scores uh, contributing to the overall draft-worthy pool, if it's again one, you know, 10 out of a thousand, uh, then gets you know whatever one percent of the money allocated for that category. Now you said in the article, and I think this is the critical thing, 
Rankings, rankings or price lists should be viewed through a relative lens, not an absolute lens. What does that mean? Um, in order, well, we, we talked about the flaws, uh, general flaws. Each of these methods has its own internal flaw. SGP, you don't start gaining points until you eclipse the last place team. Um, we, it's, it's, we can, if you want to, we can we can follow that up now or later date if you want, but that skews the values. I haven't talked about the flaws of PVM before this particular piece, um, and I should have. I should have looked deeper. The flaws of PVM are you were giving a percentage of the overall pool. The categories are not linear. The, it takes a, a, a different. If you spend X amount of dollars in a category, you're not going to get the same number of points in each category. So the distribution with each category is not linear. And assigning value in a linear manner, you know, it's a contradiction. So that's that's the flaw with, with PVM. And SGP, I'm sorry, Z-scores, it's elegant math, but it just doesn't, doesn't necessarily relate to how a player helps your team. So, we, so given the fact that the projections are flawed, the methods are flawed. There's even more flaws. The The number can't be treated absolute. You can't say that such and such is a $30 player. And then the other guy is a $28 player. And therefore, that's exactly what they're worth. However, if everybody's subject to the same flaws, subjected to the same flaws, then you can probably say this guy can help your team more than this guy. So on a relative basis, player A might be better than player B. I don't think you can say spend $30 and that's it and don't go over. But I do think you can say you can spend more based upon what the market is doing. You can spend more on this guy than that guy because he comes out a little higher within these different rankings. You can get granular and say, well, this affects deals more than this. So maybe you can't make that judgment once you get down to particular types of players. But, you know, if a, you know, pitch, when, a, when players or hitters and pitchers are generally the same profile – you can you can get them on you can get a relative rank. Now it's just a matter of timing the market or judging the market. What's the market playing for these type of players, and and you know paying accordingly. But that's what I mean by relative, not absolute. And yeah, when you when it comes to particular categories, I mean at a certain point in the draft, you come to uh, do I take you know Joey Gallo or do I take uh, Marcus Simeon? Well, if you need at at that point in your draft, based on your roster, if you need power, you you take uh, Nelson Cruz or Joey Gallo. If you need speed, maybe you look more at a Semyon or somebody like that. That's just common sense roster building. The problem I have, Todd, with all these valuation methods is that typically they're based on the number of players that are taken in the draft for active rosters. And some of them, the Baseball HQ Custom Draft Guide allows you to put in re uh, reserve round picks as well, wh right. which it gives zero value to, but it at least ranks them so that you know that you know this guy's better than that guy uh, as far as a reserve round pick. But we know increasingly important is the fact that not all the stats are generated by the first 276 players or by the first however many are in a 15-team league of 345 players. There's all kinds of stats that are going to get generated by guys who don't get drafted or who go into reserve, but the, but the method always takes, takes into belief that it's only those first uh, 345 players in a 15-team setup. It's only them who generate stats, and we're going to base all our valuations on that 
when in fact, it seems to me anyway, if you're talking, say, about the percentage valuation method, it seems to me that what we need to do is we need to say, here's how many home runs are projected, not just by the top uh, 14 hitters per team, but by all the hitters, because all, all, or by whatever percentage of home runs in a year gets applied uh, to fantasy baseball purposes, then that's the number of players we have to rank, not just the the, the active ones, because there's going to be more than the active players who contribute to the values as the year goes on. Yeah, I I've been I've been down this road and uh, I've been down this rabbit hole many 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 times. And uh, it's uh, kind of explain what I'm talking about here, but um, yeah. Um, so now yeah, you sort of you, you ask yourself, do I need to rank more than 276 players? Do I need to put value on uh, the number of players I think are going to be in the majors at that time? But then the problem is you're only drafting 276 or 345, so. Even though the value might not be accurate, the prices and the rankings you're coming up with are what you need to pay to fill a legal roster. So while the number may be inaccurate, sort of the the, the, the counter to that is, all this is true, but I'm not going to be drafting 400 players. I'm only going to be drafting 276, so I need to figure out what I need to pay, where I need to rank the player uh, just to get them on my roster. And so, in, in so having having doing that, so okay, still as you say, shouldn't the, the PVM use the projected season-ending totals and not within the category? Well, if you do that and then uh, adjust the pool to have all the money be spent, the number comes out to be the same anyway. So even though it may be a lower percentage, you have to make an adjustment to to make sure you're spending all the money. And it turns out that the you know the number deflates and then inflates and comes back to where it was. So yeah, on, on paper all this matters. And I think it's a it's a more it could be a better exercise if to sort of see. I think it's more applicable when to see if how a player did compared to his season-ending numbers. Because once you know the numbers, you can you can make these adjustments and and kind of retroactively make this all fit and say uh, did a you know did what a player cost in the preseason or the for the draft did he end up earning that based upon how much he played and other players I think it's more applicable there but you know the the, the fight is you have to adjust the numbers to, to on draft day uh, and. It, it, they kind of you you re, you readjust them back to the same point. Now, kind of another ancillary point of what you're saying too is, not every league has the same eligibility rules. So, if you use a, a source, you know, RotoWire, Masters Ball, Baseball HQ, we just lump them all together. We project a certain, you know, we may, we may be projecting Joe Odell to come up mid-season. He's one of our draft-worthy players. But you may be in a league that either he's on a minor league roster or isn't eligible to be drafted until he comes up, and he's you know part of the pool in, in your general source. He may not be part of your pool, so it's kind of along that same line of thinking. It, it throws things off just because he's not part of the draft-worthy pool. It just adds another element of inaccuracy to the final numbers. 
Yeah, I think that part of it is interesting that the looking backwards at what the values were can be very precise because you can figure out exactly how many players got got into the into the fantasy field. You can eliminate the you know one and two home run guys or you know guys who threw three innings or something like that, and get a much better picture of it looking backwards. The problem is looking forwards. Right, you know the standing, so you know the denominator. You know how many home runs mattered in the league. Well, in a league, that's another problem I've had with SGPs right. is that every league's different, and you have to, you know, tr- try to figure out ahead of time what are the gaps going to be in in stolen bases, and the best you can do with that is got to be some kind of estimate or some kind of guess because in any particular league, we've all had this experience. One year, the stolen bases are all clumped in the middle, and so you say, oh, the SGPs for stolen bases are going to be very small because it takes very few stolen bases to make these big jumps. But as soon as you do that, the next year it's all spread out because one guy, you know, uh, one guy took Billy Hamilton, one guy took uh, Malik Smith, and all the rest of the guys kind of evened everything out, and it's kind of spread out a bit. There's no way of knowing in advance. It's all guesswork. Right, and to you know, I use PVM, but to to, to take a shot at PVM with that exact mindset that you just applied to SGP, you don't know where you're gonna, you don't know if you're gonna finish one home run or one above or one home run below the next person so in one league the same percentage of stats could get you you know 10 points the same percentage of stats could get you six points based upon the distribution within that league yeah i think that when you think about this it's kind of like the the old story about the guy who's who comes out of the bar and he realizes he's lost his car keys and uh he's looking underneath the street lamp and, and a guy comes out and says, what's your problem? The guy says, I lost my keys. He says, oh, are they around here? He says, no, I lost them in the alley. And the guy says, well, why aren't you looking in the alley? He said, the light's better out here. In a, in your uh, early, in the earlier Z Files column, Todd, you had called tips for projecting playing time. You suggested fantasy owners could do their own projections by getting a decently reliable estimate of the rate stats possibly from you or possibly from Baseball HQ or whoever, then just multiplying the rates by figuring out the playing time for themselves. And and that actually gets you a little more into the into the niceties of figuring out the players that you want to draft by doing the research for it. So why would owners want to consider this approach of calculating the playing time independently of you guys and then applying your rate stats? Even though... You know, I, you, you talk to me about players I like, and you talk to you talk to Jim McCaffrey, Errol Cohen, you, you, and the guests you're going to be having in the future. The 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 skill level of players in the different projection systems they differ, but they don't differ a ton. Uh, we are, you know, now this argument is less is less uh, salient than it's been in previous years because there's more data out there to identify these outliers at least we think there is but even so the skill level between different projection systems is it's just it's not a, it's not huge and the difference being is how much you feel a person you know how much you feel i mean in an al only you'll be drafting al only for uh late uh tout wars in a few weeks player like david fletcher we we kind of know his rate of performance but you may think he's going to play nearly every day. Somebody else can say, you know what, he's a utility player now. So you, you give him 550 at-bats, someone else gives him 350. That's a huge difference in the ranking for the same slash line. So, it, you know, every – all right, I'm not talking about Christian – well, actually, I am talking about Christian Yelich because he's going to get hurt. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the top-of-line players, but 
once you get down to the you know the, the nitty-gritty of your roster the difference isn't talent the difference is how much we think players are going to play and this is where everybody can give their own seasoning their own taste you know you, you mentioned you know masters ball hq you can go to it's free you can go to fan graphs and use steamer uh you know so you don't even have to have the baseline of a of a, of a paid subscription source and then just and then just figure it out and you know you don't even have to do it to all the players just pick out the lesser players and just try to you know compare it to an adp or whatever you want to do and find the players that you think that you differ on and it's probably going to be playing time and uh, the game was originally designed wasn't it to help test our baseball acumen against our friends and competitors and in in doing this we'd kind of be returning to that because we're now we're matching wits on not who does Todd say or who does baseball HQ say or who does Ariel Cohen yeah. say are the guys to draft I'm going to look at each player and I'm going to say I think this guy's 650 plate appearances and and, and rank them that way and if you're right you win and if you're wrong you don't and that is a test of acumen at that point it's not just right. uh, testing the acumen of the skills uh, estimates because as you said for one thing they're much more stable than the outcomes are which is what makes the game fun I uh, I got offered a, a chance to play in a league once Todd that used you know strikeouts per nine rather than strikeouts and walks per nine rather than whip and these kind of things and it, the the problem with it was you pra- you practically knew who'd won the league at the minute after it was over because they're so stable these stats right. and and uh, so it is a chance at least to if you want to do it that way to really put your acumen on the line. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, people talk about it, and I think we both talked and written about it too, is, you know, in, in the hitting side of things, it's not exact, but if you take, if you rank, if you rank hitting points in a rotisserie league versus at-bats or plate appearances at the end of the year, there's a pretty strong correlation. That it, that being, the teams that get more plate appearance, get more at-bats, get more hitting points. Some of it has to do with injuries, etc., but a lot of it has to do with just being more, you know, being better coming in and drafting players that are going to play more. One of the charts in your article that really had me scratching my head and saying, why didn't I think of that, was the idea that playing time estimate starts with the strength of the team's offense. Explain that. Yeah, and uh, we can use a, a couple players as examples, but the... the, uh, the Number of times the lineup turns over, they're going to score more runs. You get more plate appearances, and it you guess the, the more runs you scored, you know the more the more times you're going to get to the plate. So I think it's an error. I don't. I think it's 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 wrong to just average the league. The the leadoff hitter gets 734 plate appearances. So you just you know whoever leading off for the Giants gets the same. Projected plate appearances is the leadoff hitter for the Yankees. I I think that's misleading. I don't think that's fair because it's not going to happen. So it doesn't. You know, it takes me I don't know. It takes me 45 minutes a year out of my out of my year to download the the season ending uh, plate appearances per batting order. But I do it for each team. And if my projections on a three year average, I will do a three year average of target plate appearances for each lineup spot. And then I will make my own adjustment. You know, did the did the, the Red Sox 
do I have to knock them down because without Mookie Betts they're going to score X amount of fewer runs and therefore get X amount of fewer plate appearances or do the do certain teams it's judgment but you got to do it you know that's what we're doing it's all judgment so I, I will make a uh, an adjustment to this an adjustment to this to to account for the the, the level of the the level of the offense etc but I you know the the leadoff hitter for the Padres is not going to get as many plate appearances as the leadoff hitter for the uh, I'm, you know, I, I usually just say Astros at this point, so I'll, I'll continue to say it. You know, a team that's going to score a lot of runs. Yeah, I think that's crucial, and the chart showed just how much it was. I think the Red Sox were the example of the very solid offensive team, and their leadoff guy had 700 and some plate appearances. Then you had kind of the median team, and and that guy, the leadoff slot gener or that team, the the leadoff slot generated you know, 705 plate appearances. And then the, then a, a lesser team, the Padres or somebody with a weak offense, the leadoff guy actually had only 680 plate appearances. And you think to yourself, well, the, that, that difference is just the same as the difference between the leadoff guy and the sixth place guy, like a right. sixth place Red Sox hitter was actually going to get more plate appearances than a leadoff guy in San Diego. And you have to keep that in mind, part of acumen. Right, we talk. I think I think it's well known. We, everybody talks about the difference between spot and the batting order. I don't know that it's it's. it's I think I think people made intuitive do it. I don't. I can't speak for other projection systems how they do it, but it's just to me it's it's part of the process. It's done if you're do, if you're doing it via spreadsheet, it's not that hard to do. You also cautioned owners that they should be objective when they're figuring out playing time, and you said object objectivity means being conservative. What does that, all that mean? Yeah, a uh, couple different examples of this is you know just in general, players that we like for even you know intuitively or just we like, we're gonna we're gonna over project and 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 it just as part of part of our bias. So I think we need to be careful. We can't. It's one thing they'll think a player is going to break out skills-wise, but be you know logical as to how much they're going to play. And all right, if they're a better player, maybe they play more. But I think it's just part of our the human element, the the, the human uh, approach that we are going to you know you know forgive or or feel a player we like is going to play more, is more resistant to injuries or whatever it might be. It's it's not the case. It's just be be careful. It, it's all right. You already like the player's skills. Just go by that. Don't double down and also play more when it's completely unnecessary. You're already going to be ranking him higher. And it's uh, usually, I mean, I, I've done studies on this as well. Players that it's just really hard to repeat a 700 plate appearance season, uh, 680 plate appearance season. And even if a player's done it a couple of three years. It's to project him for doing it again. It's again the whole plausible outcome that we talked about a little bit. There's more plausible outcomes below 700 plate appearances than there are above. So it's just be be really careful about assuming. And I'll use the you know it's retrospect, but he he was the guy I used before. But Francisco Lindor. Last year, he missed less time than we thought, but he missed time after getting several 700 plate appearance seasons in a row. I put him, I had him down as a, as a risk just because there's just no upside, and it, it, that that happened to be one that came to fruition. But the the point being, it's 
I've done the I've done I've done the studies. I've shown how infrequent it is to repeat such a level of plate appearance. And I've also shown that what, where the level is, uh, where it, this is almost like I know I'm jumping ahead. This is kind of the stuff that Ariel Cohen talks about as far as um, looking for areas to attack. That what 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 happens to these areas? Players that get between three and four hundred plate appearances one year are more likely to jump up to the 500 range. So target players that got three or 400 the previous season, things like that are, the, uh, are, are things to look at to apply this whole plate appearance stuff. But just, you know, be, be unbiased as you can about players. Don't assume he's got a Superman cape on for whatever reason, because you like him, he could just as easily get hurt as somebody else. And, uh, and from you know, Mike Mike Trout is sort of an example of you know of 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 this sort of thing, and where we just don't know where to rank. Well, you know, Yelich, Trout, and even Acuna. It's so cool how these top three guys are so good, but there's a question around all three of them, and how normally the two of us would be saying, "Go easy on Acuna. He's only had a year and a half. He could be the safest of those three just because it's at least health isn't a concern. A guy I like to think about in this context, Todd, is uh, Jonathan VR. Uh, I had him on a, on a couple of successful teams last year, and a big part of his success was he played every day, he played every game, and he yeah. had 700 and some plate appearances. Now he moves to Miami. We're, we're not exactly sure. He should play as much as he, his health allows him. But as right. you said, I think we have to start thinking, you know, this guy's had a pretty good run of good health for the last couple of years, but it wasn't that long ago that he missed 40 games when he was playing for Milwaukee. Now, part of that was he wasn't playing just because they didn't want him to play. But also part of it was he, he had the aches and pains, and it cuts into his amount of, of plate appearances. So when I look at VR and he moves to Miami, now Baltimore was not a good offensive team, so I'm not going to discount his 714 plate appearances on that score. It's not like he's going right. from the Red Sox to Miami. He's going from Baltimore to Miami. But at the same time, I have a hard time believing that 714 plate appearances is in VR's immediate future. For sure, and just the other reasons being in a National League club with a lot of moving parts. I mean, every day VR is playing a different position. At least that's what the the reports are. The latest report is he's the he's the let's say Dolphins. He's the Marlins center fielder now. Well, if he's not if he's not great defensively, well now you got a defensive replacement coming in, and maybe you move VR to another position, or maybe he comes out of the game. So, yeah, again, the whole plausible outcome aspect of it all, it's absolutely right. And uh, he, now this also goes into the, all right, so you've now discounted number of plate appearances. He's lower in the in the air quote ranks because he plug him into this inaccurate value system. And suddenly um, it, it's, it's it, which we'll be talking about in a, in a bit, but it, it comes down and he's down in the ranks. But now it's a matter of team construct. Uh oh, I need steals or, or or et cetera. I now do I need to jump up the ranks for my construct, no matter what I said, because I need the steals. And this ties in Mabry method and Ron Chandler's Babs managing risk. So it's this is why rankings and raw values just are such such a starting point and not the whole picture. And I keep saying it: the more I know about values, the more I know about projections, the more I realize it's just a, such a small part 
of drafting, it's that sixth sense. It's that ability to read the market. It's that ability to uh, just know what's going on and know when you need to take a certain player to fill a certain need, regardless of the ranking, that separate the, I don't want to say men from the boys, it's not what I mean, separate the wheat from the chaff. That's the expression, the wheat from the chaff in, uh, as far as fantasy plays go. And that brings up another thing I'd like to bring up before we end this segment, Todd. It was a column you wrote about how to properly use ADPs in formulating your draft tactics. First, what are the errors owners make most commonly in applying ADPs for their own drafts? Well, they consider the ADP a ranking, and they just they consider that the, that's that's it's 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 the market. It's how the market feels, and. Uh, some of it, there's you know a couple of specific examples. Um, if a player, and I hear this all the time, and I cringe, I needed to draft him at the, and even see this in magazines. Some of the some of our colleagues put this in in our when we do the mock drafts and do our our, our analysis. Uh, if I didn't, I knew he wasn't going to make it back to me. Well, you know, you know he's not going to make it back to you because of the ADP. But the player still has to be the best player for your team at that time. If he's not going to make it back to you and there's better players to take, you don't you know, you don't take him, you know, you you, you take somebody else. He's not so a lot of players aren't going to make it back to you. If he's not going to make it back to you and he's going to help your team, okay, take him. So, it's just using the ADP to uh to 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 say to play the chicken with the ADP, that's fine, but uh, don't don't apply it to the next step and take players that aren't worthy for your team because the ADP said so. Uh, that sounds like tremendous advice. I just offer this as possible exceptions. Uh, when the closer run starts and you realize that there's not going to be one coming back to you, I, I think it's reasonable to promote a guy half around just to make sure you get you know one of the guys that you think is going to be a player for you in the closer run. And to a lesser extent, I think the same might be true of the stolen base category. If you realize you're really suffering in stolen bases and you're worried that VR is not going to reach you or somebody like that who's actually a, a, a helpful player, you might say, you know what? He's half a round or three quarters of a round early at that spot. But if I don't get him, the next choice is Malik Smith, and that's just empty bags, and I don't want that. Right, but you're not, you're not, we're not, you're not, you didn't really contradict what I said. You actually no. supported it. Said, I mean, that player is the best player for your team at that time. Right. Regardless of the rank. So the ADP, this is a, if you were to ask the proper use of the ADP, this is what I would have said. Uh, so it's, it's really not a contra, you know, it, it's, it's contextual. But absolutely, and uh, we talk a lot about, and I haven't talked, and we'll talk a lot about the inaccuracy of rankings and value. So how can you say a player is worthy of that of that draft spot, etc.? Well, it's still, relatively speaking, compared to other players, is he? Do you feel he's best for your player at that time? You know, yeah, using the dollar value, using the rank. But just using the roster construct and what you're looking for at the end of the day as the target more so than the, the if I have $32, should I pay $32? One of the things I do, and I know lots of people do this, is I have a list of the guys I want in more or less the order I want them. And yep. if I see a, a player that I have ranked way higher in, in my rankings than the ADPs, I kind of use that information in the back of my mind to think, okay, this guy's ADP is in the ninth round. 
I'm in the seventh. I think that's a good enough bargain for me to, to, to get him because I think he's higher rate. I don't want to wait till the eighth and I certainly don't want to wait in the ninth out of fear of being sniped. So there's that, you know, comparing where you have a guy to where everybody else has him. If everybody else has him way higher, I think you have to resign yourself to saying, I'm not going to get him. But if, if everybody else has him, or if the wisdom of the crowd has him quite a bit lower, then you can actually not take him in the round. You would for optimal reasons, but take somebody else on the expectation you might get him a, a little bit later. Yeah, that's what I referred to a couple times as playing chicken with the ADP. That's right. What I mean by that is, is it, when do you when do you take him? Because you know, it's all it takes is one other person to feel the same way. Um, now, a flaw. I'm going to say a flaw in my game, uh, be it actions and drafts the past several years. I truly, I truly believe this to be the case is I do just what you'd said and I identify all these players that I can draft ahead of the field and I just I go into the I went into the draft saying all right I'm going to get this guy this guy and this guy in this round this round and that round what do I need to do what do I need to draft in these other rounds uh to you know if 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 three of those guys were speed guys or three of those guys were I don't know middle infielders you know I have to plan the rest of my picks and plan around it that that was being I don't want to say an idiot, but that that was not that was not an optimal op, an optimal approach, because I could be leaving stats on the table in an effort to accommodate a player that I may or may not get 15 rounds later, and I think that was a flaw. And whether it was caught up in my the fact that this is my job and I want to plant my flag on players that I'm gonna be high on I thought I thought it was a mistake and I vowed to not draft you know if I get if I have five of such guys and I only end up with two fine that's I got those two don't expect to get all five and weaken the supporting cast around them and I'm going to be honest I think I've been doing that and it, it's contributed to my uh, lesser than uh, what I want to have my results be in several leagues in the past couple of years well, whatever you were doing, you did it right in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational last year. You won that league, and it's a NFBC-style league, so we had all of that information available to us. This has been great. Uh, again, so far, Todd, uh, maybe take another break. We'll come back. We'll talk about some players. Yeah, uh, you know what? That sounds like a great idea, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball and Rotowire and talks for SiriusXM. We'll get back to Todd in a jiffy, but let me take a minute to tell you about First Pitch Florida. It's coming up fast on February 28th through March 1st in sunny St. Pete. There are still a few seats left, and if you get out to First Pitch Florida, you'll be able to take in sessions on potential 2020 player breakouts and regressions, some 2020 player pool analysis, what the current ADP trends are telling us, some gaming strategies that reflect the changing MLB landscape, and tons more. There's a Friday night welcome reception and in-person watch parties for the National League and American League Labor Drafts. You can draft a squad yourself in Saturday evening's draft night competing against other attendees and the experts in real 2020 leagues that will be administered by the NFBC. And as if that weren't enough, two Grapefruit League games, the Tigers and the Yankees on the Saturday afternoon, Baltimore at Philly on Sunday. As I said, only a few seats left, so get over to BaseballHQ.com slash first-pitch-florida to get all the info and to register. First Pitch Florida, an entire weekend of nothing but fantasy baseball, all designed to get you fully prepared for the 2020 season. BaseballHQ.com slash first-pitch-florida. See you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
Time now for part three of our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure once more to be joined by Todd Zola for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and SiriusXM. Todd, welcome back. Todd Zola, welcome back. Good to be back with you, PD, both both in this talk and in general. Missed you. Yeah, right back at you. Uh, since we spoke last, you did a big series on your top players at each position, and I'd like to talk about a few of them by position. Uh, the first thing that caught my eye was uh, that drafting JT Real Muto was a good idea. You said even knowing it will cost and put you behind the eight ball at other spots. First of all, what's so compelling about Real Muto? And second of all, why does it put you behind the eight ball? So now I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the, the the opening that Gary Sanchez stays healthy and has a good year. I mean that's everybody's own opinion, and I think that's that's very 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 possible. But the main reason being, you know, standard projection wise, because he plays so much and so well, the delta the gap between Rio Muto and the field is just huge, and. Over the years, I've learned that most of the concepts, game theory discussions, there's more than one way to skin a cat. You, you know, we're both right. It's just difference of opinion. The one area where I'm going to remain adamant and that you're wrong, and, I'm, and I know there's people out there that, that you know, friends, etc., people in the industry, etc., you're wrong, is catcher valuation in that the you need to readjust or adjust you need to adjust so that the worst catcher is still, you know, is a whatever, $1, whatever you want to call it. The stats of the worst catcher, uh, the, the stats of a catcher contribute more than the stats of another position just because of the, the, the position. You hear people say, well, I don't, there's only eight positively ranked catchers in a mixed league. No, no, no. There are 24 or there are 30. You have to adjust the baseline. Because you know it's it's based on replacement, and once you when you after you do that after you do that, the uh, the, the 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 amount that a guy like Remiro or Gary Sanchez or Mitch Garver they they get jumped up, and it's not so much that because that happens every year, but the difference between Rio Muto and the field is just it's just huge. So to me, if you're confident. In drafting later, that you you want to take a pitcher in the third, fourth round, whatever it might be, and you feel you can make up your team later, it is a year to take Real Muto on and put that top catcher. Now the that's what's corollary, but the other thing about it is if you if you get if there are other catchers that you like, the opportunity cost might not may, may 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 preclude from making the pick that's the normal case the opportunity cost to me the reason it's just so wiped out this year because he is just so much better than the field so the question is uh, when you say that it's going to cost you do you mean that because of where he is he might legitimately go ahead of where his actual projected valuation should put him he's 48 ADP right now at, at the NFPC and that's like late third round early fourth round kind of thing is that higher than he really ought to go because of this position premium or is he decent value even if he was an outfielder with his numbers yeah, no, that's um. Well, his numbers actually that's around. Uh, the NFBC is making the adjustment whether they're doing it 
by numbers or whether they're just doing it intuitively, the NFBC is making the the adjustment. I in my rankings, I have them ranked 36. You know that you know projections are different, whatever. And so you said you said what was the I my my latest NFBC is 47, but it depends on when you filter. It does you know early third, early fourth round, eight late late third. So um, I have you know my 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 personal rank is a little ahead of the ADP. Um, so it, it appears that the market is making the adjustment, be it intuitively or numerically. So at 48th overall, including pitchers, uh, it could be that JT Real Muto actually plays as a bargain if he's act- if you think he's higher than that, like at uh, 36, you said, which would be early third round. He's going kind of early fourth round. Uh, if you can get him in the early fourth round, it sounds like you're actually getting a bargain. Right, which may be why I'm so uh, bullish on on ag- aggressively drafting him. Um, is because after I do my adjustment, this you know if if, if I didn't do the adjustment, I mean I, I you know I'll, I'll throw out numbers, get him hitting 282 with 26 homers, and you know uh, 88 runs, 85 RBI. That's nice, six steals. That's not that's not third fourth round nice. If that was an outfielder. That's fifth, sixth, seventh round nice. So the the fact he's a catcher very much helps. But um, it's compared to the, you know, the reason, it, it's more of the, I know I'm repeating myself, but the, if you, not everybody does this uh, adjustment. So you're able to get, I hate the word bargain, you're able to get a bargain like on any catcher. So you don't have to get the bargain on Riamuto. You can get you know the same bargains down as you go down the, the the line. The point being the the opportunity cost of of pass. The reason being well, the opportunity cost of taking Yamito. You can't get these bar. You only get one more bargain. There's only two catcher spots. The the, the savings or the profit is just so big on Yamito. It's worth giving up that opportunity cost and just taking the the a second catcher at a discount or you know, discount relative to the field later. The way I look at it, Todd, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, but to me the question is if you look at Real Muto in the third, as your third-round pick and then you figure, well, he should really be a sixth-round pick, the question is what are you going to get in the sixth round uh, instead of a, a JT Real Muto by, by way of numbers, and then what happens if you do it the other way around? And from that point of view, I think, uh, you know, you're looking at Real Muto in uh, in the same area as Charlie Blackman or uh, Whit Merrifield, guys like that, in the current ADPs. So the question is, if you draft Charlie Blackman or Whit Merrifield instead of Real Muto and wait till the seventh round to get your catcher, where, Re- where Real Muto really ought to be by pure numbers, you're probably not going to get a catcher anywhere near that. And the sum of what you get from the outfield slot and that catcher slot might be less than if you had gone with the real Muto in the first place because there's probably going to be a, a, a surplus of reasonably talented, reasonably productive outfielders in that in that slot later on. Right, and that's it's that's that's the I mean the key that the what you're looking at is I, I mean I I like that you know you can compare third round to seventh round I I still look at it as a total roster thing because you don't have to make outfield catcher in those particular rounds you can do whatever you want and get the other position later and, and make it all even out in the end but the point being um, 
Riomiro may only hit, I say only, I wish I could hit 26 homers. Riomiro hits 26 homers, but I don't know, I'm and so much making up, they're intuitive. 23 of those homers matter because the replacement level catcher was three. So 23 of his homers matter, and an outfielder gets 26 homers, but the replacement level outfielder may have six homers, so only 20 of the outfielder's homers actually you know, get valued because you don't want to give value to what everybody has. If everybody has it, it's, not, it's, it's, it's worthless. So uh, however you want to do the comparison math, by the end of your draft, you will, you will be able to make up because of the fact that someone else is taking a, a, a worse catcher, your counting stats should all even out, uh, even though I know this is going to contradict something I mentioned in the article. I don't phrase this very well in the piece. But you may be behind counting stats early if you take Riamino and not taking someone projected to hit 35 or 40 homers. But by the time you get to the end of the draft and you, and, and the other your, compo- your opponents are adding in catchers that are hitting 8 and 9 and 10 homers and you're picking an outfielder that's hitting 17, 18 and 19 homers, now the homer now that your counting stats in general now by the end of the draft are are it should be in your favor. You had Edward Encarnacion at number 16 on your list uh, at first base, but you said in the article, because he hadn't signed yet, he could move down or up a few spots from that slot, depending on where he landed. He landed with the White Sox, as we all know. How did uh, that affect your assessment of Edward Encarnacion? Uh, it's, <laughs> he's, he's the guy, you know, on, on a market basis, it don't matter, because he's, he's old and boring, and he, he, gets a, he gets a huge discount anyway. But um, it helps. White Sox is, uh, what's it at this point, guaranteed rate park. It helps power. And Encarnacion is a power hitter, obviously. So uh, my, my initial set of projections I, are done in a neutral park for free agents. So just to get something out there. So the, the, the projection improved. And he's still actually looking at his ADP. I think it's. I think maybe maybe because he went to Chicago in the good lineup, the 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 difference isn't huge. And again, it's one person's projection versus another. I have him ranked one sixtieth. The ADPs are presently around mid mid one seventies. So you know, used to be able to get him. Now you I mean, you take him around early. Be, used to be able to like juggle in between the ranking and and the ADP and and, and sort of he would play the game as far as two or three round difference and try to figure out where you, you pretty much have to take him at the ranking or I have to take him at my ranking because he in, on paper won't be available uh, in the next round. So I, I'm not getting quite as big of a discount on Encarcion. You know, he's one of those one year too early, one year too late. I guess he's had such success hitting at least 32 homers the past three years, kind of like Nelson Cruz, that he's not getting quite the age discount that some of these old, boring vets are getting. I noticed that uh, if you run the ADPs from the, the earliest uh, November date and compare them to what happens if you run from January 15th, he's moved up about a full round since he signed. Yep. So that, that seems, a, a but still a pretty good bargain. It seems to me at 163, uh, it's like the 11th round. I, I wrote a, a little piece at the end of last week's uh, Friday News and Notes edition of BaseballHQ.com 
of all the players that are currently active, only one has had 30 home runs for eight straight years, and it's Edwin Encarnacion, and there's something to be said for that level of consistency. Uh, Todd, you have Jose Altuve, third among second basemen, but that was largely before the revelations about trash cans and buzzers and all that kind of stuff. How did the cheating revelations affect your evaluation of Jose Altuve? I mean, we could talk forever about this. Um, when when the when the first when when the when when things first came out, my my you know my analysis, if you will, I wasn't changing Houston's projections or my expectations. Now I'm not I'm not condoning the act the the cheating act. It's terrible. I despise. The fact, and it could even be my, 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 my own favorite team, the Red Sox, within the next couple of weeks are going to be lumped into this too. They were cheating, and it just, it, it, from a baseball fan, it just grinds at me. That doesn't mean you can't objectively decide how much it hurt or helped uh, play. And I know there are major leaguers. Mike Trout says he'd love to know. I mean, I never played the game, so laugh, 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 laugh away. Does I, I still question the extent it helped uh if you just look at the numbers if you know these pitchers that are saying it ruined their career why didn't why didn't every pitcher get lit up like that every single game so my so initially i wasn't going to make any adjustments and leave it up to my customers or readers to decide if i'm all wet and and raise or lower these players with the extent of the scrutiny which i probably should have anticipated um, I have to make an adjustment now. We've, as we, we've talked about in the past, a true projection is a weighted average of all plausible outcomes. And at this point, I think you're naive if you don't at least consider the fact that all the scrutiny, the the, the questions, the just the, the sheer mental drag on these players could bring their performance level down. Some people will say that some of these will internalize it and motivate and play better. That's a plausible outcome as well. Uh, I think you can. I think you can make an argument that Dusty Baker will give some of these players, Alex Bregman, Altuve, Springer, players that play every single day when they're healthy. I think you're going to make an argument that he's going to give them some mental days, and they may get two or three more off days than normal. If you, these are all plausible outcomes. When you add up all these plausible outcomes, the performance level is a little bit below than what I would have projected without it. So I decided at this point to make a, a playing time adjustment where I'm taking a little bit of a playing time away from the, from everybody. And I'm making a slight change to the performance level. It may not get captured because it's so small that it may be round off that if a player was projected to hit 19.4 homers, it comes up to 19. And if the 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 or let's say 19.6, so it goes up to 20, and the new projection is well now I'm doing it backwards. But point being, if if Roundoff kept it the same, but they actually hit like 0.8 fewer homers, it may not even get recognized in the in, in, in certain players. But I am taking away uh, you know away uh, uh, some of their some of their skill at this point, just because I think you're naive to think that. This isn't a possibility, and you know it, it's not. This to me, this isn't even a straw man. It makes sense, and a couple of people have talked about it. 
What are the, the, the chances of these players getting increased because of injury, taking one off the wrist? That it's, it's a plausible outcome that needs to be factored. I'm always surprised when I see Justin Turner as well down the value list as he usually is, whether by position or overall. Uh, his ADP around 170, so 13th round, and he's also well down in your third base rankings. Justin Turner seems to get the job done every year. Why is he not getting any love? Um, I, he, he gets love. Now, I, part of it, I'm not part of it, but when we, you know, we've, we've talked about, we're going to talk about valuation. And a lot of the with Turner is that he's probably going to miss time. So when you take because he, he's missed time, and I think last year was the, the highest or second highest number of games or played in plate appearances that he's had for his career. Which when you, you know the other side of thirty, it's it can that be repeated or should it expect to be repeated? You know I I think you have to factor in missing some games especially since the Dodgers have got so many moving parts that I'm not going to say there wouldn't be a drop-off if he wasn't in the lineup, but they, they've they got enough flexibility to be able to make up for his absence, and they've done so for the past couple of years. So the point being, you take Justin Turner's numbers, and this is a flawed valuation. You take Justin Turner's numbers, and you put it into your projection system, it's going to come out, you know, the numbers, whatever, whatever you know, $24, whatever it might be, whatever the ranking might be, it doesn't incorporate the player that would be taking up that roster spot when he's out. And if you add that together, that roster spot's worth a lot more. So you, you're getting more out of that roster spot. So Turner is a, a particular type of player that I like because you're paying for his production and you're getting more production on that roster spot. Of course, the danger is that the production you get from the replacement is not going to be nearly at the same rate as it would be if Justin Turner himself were playing. Having said that, but of course, you're getting, you're getting some and it's free, right? Uh, yeah. But when I looked at Justin Turner's track record as far as injuries, uh, the only year in the last seven that he has had no uh, injured days was 2016. He had 550 at-bats or so. If you knew that was going to happen, you'd probably be a lot more confident in raising him up a little bit. Although, intriguingly, it was the next year that he actually had his best fantasy year, even though he uh, ended up missing uh, 100 at-bats, relatively speaking. It's tough to, to figure out how you want to handle these Justin Turner-type guys. And I think maybe the question is, if you have a Justin Turner in your, li- in, in your lineup, maybe you want to be sure or as sure as you can be with some of the guys around him that they are much less prone to injury. Yes, and the other thing you can do is get some flexibility position-wise. So if he does, you know, if he does get hurt or when he does get hurt, you can move players around so that you're able to, you're not necessarily filling his roster spot, but you're, maybe you move a, a player to third base, an outfield third base eligible. You move Brian Anderson, who I mentioned, in the mixed league. Maybe you have him in the outfield. He's eligible at third. You now move him to third base. You had an outfield in your utility, who now backfills for Anderson. Your utility is now open, which means you can take the, the most valuable, or the, the, the not so much most valuable, whatever player feels you helps your team the most, be it from your reserve list, be it in a trade, or be it from free agency waivers. So, if, and, and the other thing about that is there are more uh, 
multiple eligibility players heading into this season than there have ever been. So if your roster doesn't have this flexibility, you're actually giving your opponent's rosters even more flexibility. So I don't know that I'm, I'm I don't know that I'm jumping up these multiple eligibility guys a ton. I think you know I think Ty always goes to the multiple eligibility guy, but I do think you need to. And I have actually I've tried to quantify it. Maybe we'll talk about it at a different time. I've actually quantified how much these multiple position eligible is worth, and literally in, in this size league add three dollars, in this side league add two dollars. I've tried to do that um, in in rankings etc. And this year even if it's not done such so granularly. It's so important just because and there's so many, and there are going to be more in season that pick up eligibility. It's just the way of MLB nowadays with such flexibility, teams wanting it. And even with the 26 man roster, I don't think it's going to, people say, well, there'll be less of a need for it. I don't know that I agree with that. I think it may, I think the 26 man may be someone who can play multiple positions. Well, it would certainly make sense for them to do it that way, that's for sure. Uh, you're a little more enthusiastic about Marcus Semyon, who had his career year. Uh, many people look at it as an unrepeatable sort of phenomenon that he had such a great year. But then again, the people who are on Semyon's side say, but look at the skills. Everything he, everything he did, he did better. What's your position and why are you so optimistic that Semyon can repeat or come close? Right, so I think the I think I don't know if it's conventional wisdom, but I think the party line is that Semyon was a player who greatly benefited from the the ball, the reduced drag. People call it you know juice, whatever. The reduced drag, and just looking at him because he's not the biggest guy; he's a middle infielder. So I think they just make the assumption that he you know, he had a, he his home run spike was because of the ball. Not saying the ball didn't help, it did. But one of my this this off season, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it. If not, if not this talk, some other time. I'm now so into looking at the components of both spin rate and average exit velocity. And I'll I'll speak you know talking about hitter now. So average exit velocity, the Fly ball, ground ball, and line drive average exit velocities. You can on Statcast and other places, you can get it to that level and not just look at the the, you know, the average you know, of all three, the the weighted average of all the different batted balls. Marcus Semyon had an above, well above average, well an above average average exit velocity on fly balls. People are saying, how can this happen? Well, just think of the your, your swing, the 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 the, the arc, the, the pathway of your swing. If it's going in the same direction as the ball's coming down, you're going to put more power onto it. So players have more level swings, more uppercut swings when they're making when they're meeting the ball. So a player like Semyon, for whatever reason, his swing, he's so the the, the extra home runs were a because of the ball, but b his average exit average exit velocity on fly balls was above average. And all right, that's that's descriptive. Can he do it again? I don't know. But, you know, how sticky it is. So, but my, my point being, it's not just the ball. It's not, okay, the ball reverts back. He's going to lose all his power. He's not going to lose as, as much as someone who it was just because of the ball because he hits fly balls. He drives fly balls. He hits them with authority more so than, than, than another player. 
Your positive note on Avasil Garcia makes him a bit of a dark horse for steals, as well as the power that we expect, especially with the team move. And despite an outfield playing time crunch shaping up in Milwaukee, he's your number 43 outfielder. Why the confidence in Garcia, especially on the steals part? Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at uh, my my latest rankings, and when I say these rankings, I mean it's. I say 134. That's just where he comes out raw numbers wise. That doesn't mean that's where my that's where I'll draft him because the a draft a, a ranking is just one thing. Team construct is so important, and you just don't take one from the top. This goes without hopefully goes without saying, but you know I'm gonna I'm using these numbers as static numbers, but please realize, uh, folks, that it's. That's just where my raw number says it's a starting point. It doesn't mean I'll take him. Now, I'm not trying to downplay Garcia. I'm actually going to upplay Garcia. He, I think we read a note yesterday, within the past couple of days anyway, that the Brewers are going to be using him in, some, in center field. Uh, not all the time, but they want to move Christian Yelich over to left. So Ryan Braun is going to bounce around between first base and the outfield. If, if, in order to keep Garcia's bat, I mean, you mentioned playing time. I think he's going to play when he's healthy. He's in the lineup, and you know, part of it is now because of this moving to center field to keep the bat in the lineup. He hasn't run a ton. Matter of fact, earlier in his career, like five for ten and seven for fourteen, he wasn't successful. His success rate has gotten increasingly better. To the point where he was 10 out of 14 last year, I think it's 71%, which is a little bit below what you want as far as sabermetrically to make the stolen, you know, your steals and caught steals be a wash. I think 75%, unless it's changed, is still the, the, the watermark. But he's got I don't know, 90th percentile sprint speed, and I know that doesn't translate directly. There's getting a jump and getting a lead, and, 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 and how fast you get, you get going, you're, 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 you're quickness versus speed but he's he's a fast runner in milwaukee runs so it's when you you look for that next level analysis i'm not saying not saying that he's going to steal more because we don't know but there are certainly some indicators that he's capable of doing it if you don't have to pay for it which it doesn't look like you do uh based upon the rankings if you're if you're trying to piecemeal together steals and you're just aiming for the middle of the pack and hoping one or two guys blow blow that away, he could be one that you're expecting 12 steals or 10 and gets you 17, 18, 19. And probably if he gets the playing time, could be like 30 home runs as well, which does make him interesting. You have kind of the reverse situation with your, your number 17 outfielder, Victor Robles. You seem to view him as a guy who's a pretty solid lock for steals, but a dark horse for power. What's your take on Victor Robles? Yeah, so here's here's back to the component average exit velocity. Robles hit a bunch of homers last, well, a bunch, you know, for what he hit, hit 17 last year. He is a player whose homer total to me was spiked by the ball. And also, we, we talk about Candom Yards being such a great Hitters Park because of the heat and humidity. Well, so is Nationals Park. It's a little bigger, so it's not quite to that extent. Nationals Park is a offensive ballpark, and we don't talk about it to the same extent as some others. Um, maybe we'll now because the, the Nationals are such in the spotlight, but it, it's a hitters park. So if you look at the component average exit velocity, Robles 
it's it's below average for home runs. And I mean, 17 isn't a ton, but my point being, and this is not a you know everybody's this this isn't a you know a nurse shattering piece of analysis. But I expect Robles' home runs to fall this year. Even if the ball doesn't revert, I just think that 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 he was fortunate, and the expected excuse me the expected homer should fall, and he's gonna well we'll see what 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 a player what a manager says in mid February could be different, but there's talk of Robles moving up on the order, which could be an increase of twenty or thirty plate appearances, to, depending upon where he hits and how how frequently, um, so without Anthony Rendon there and without really replacing. They replaced him with with Starling Castro and Ezra Cabrera, but it's not it's not like they replaced him with a three hitter. So they maybe do some shuffling and and bring Robles up, which could help the steals uh, in the plate appearances. But um, the at least the it could end up that he gets the same number of homers just because he gets 40 more plate appearances. But at least the, the the home run rate, number of home runs per plate appearance, I expect to fall. And finally, Todd, uh, the top pitcher by ADP this season so far has been Garrett Cole, but he's third in your ranking among starters. Who tops Garrett Cole and why? Okay, when those came out, you know, we're we're uh, I don't I don't take any time off, PD. As you know, these these pieces came out before a lot of the free agents. It turns out that that Cole jumped up a spot because this is going to seem weird. I mentioned it earlier. Yankee Stadium actually depresses run slightly, and I would have I would have had Cole projected in a neutral park, and the the wins factor going with the Yankees as well would jump up, so he improved his ranking. At this point, and again, I just kind of gave the the caveat where dollar values are you know with a taken with a grain of salt. I think I have Jacob Degrom worth like 17 cents more than Garrett Cole, so I, they're the same player. And Verlander Verlander is within striking range, so. If you if you don't take rankings verbatim, which you should not, I to me they're all the same player. So now it's just subje- subjectively which do you, and part of that is assuming that Degrom's uh, fate on getting wins reverses to where he even you know the Mets aren't going to score as many runs as the Dodgers or some of these other high-powered offenses, but he's st- he's still been shortchanged on wins. So it's just assuming using, a, you know, and I know HQ uses a similar algorithm using the Bill James uh, Pythagorean theorem to, you know, runs allowed, runs scored to try to estimate the number of wins. So it's assuming that he gets normal wins luck with DeGrom. Um, if you believe that there's something to that and that there's a reason why he's not getting wins, then, you know, maybe you, therefore you now go for Cole and or Verlander. But um, if I had to take... If I was looking for a pitcher and it was the first round, um, and I'm you know I'm going to take a pitcher at this spot, I haven't been faced with it. You know, it's easy to say I haven't been actually faced with it yet, so I don't know for sure. But I would probably lean towards Cole over over Verlander and over Degrom at this point. Yeah, the team context seems to make that. A more workable solution to me as well. Uh, Verlander has age not working for him, and I know he's he's very fit and has really looked after himself and maybe plays a little younger than 36 or 37, whatever he is. But Cole's just younger, and I think that's something you have to take into account. And then you mentioned the team effect of playing for the Mets. They're not 
probably going to be as bad as they were last year, but you know they're not going to be as good as the Yankees are, and they're not going to get the same number of wins as the Astros are in all likelihood. And there's a third thing. I, I think that the Mets' uh, bullpen is still a right. little bit in disarray. We don't know what's going to happen there. We know they've got Diaz and uh, that they've got Lugo, but after that, you know, it seems like a little that could be a little shaky as well, so some leads surrendered, which was a problem actually for DeGrom last year. So there's I think there's ample reason. Uh, I like DeGrom as much as anybody, but I think there's ample reason to move Garrett Cole ahead of him just on those other factors. Right. Now, I mean, Dylan Batons is there. So we talked a little bit about park factors. If I'm telling, if I'm saying that Cole and DeGrom are pretty much the same player, and that's factoring in that City Field is one of the best pitchers parks in the league, if you go by pure talent, if you project everybody in a neutral park, Cole will be better. Um, and even, you know, so making the adjustment, I, they come out equal. I prefer the higher talented pitcher that, you know, to me, again, plausible outcomes there because he's a, a higher talented pitcher, he probably has got more on the positive out, you know, the, the curve drafting around that midpoint, I think because of the, the better talent overcoming the park, I, I, I do that's another reason for me to like Cole is I think he's the better pitcher. So if they're tied and the reason they're tied is because DeGrom's benefiting from a ballpark in the, to me, the tiebreaker is Cole's talent over the ballpark, helping DeGrom. You're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola for masters ball, Rotowire and Sirius XM fantasy sports radio and the MLB network radio. Uh, Todd, as you know, I like to ask our experts to talk about players that you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. This is something new for you because you haven't been that type of guest, but you're that type of guest today, and I'm really curious about your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Let's start in the American League with a boon hitter. Uh, boon hitter. Um, I think people are downgrading J.D. Martinez too much. And this is I, I, I guarantee, Granted, losing Mookie Betts at the top, what it probably does, it, 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 justify, it justifies, but I think people are downgrading him a little bit too much. Um, and I actually, you know what, we did this, we did this in, in Arizona, and I think I named him. So just in case I did, I, I like Kevon Biggio, and it was recently discussed he could be hitting at the top of the order, which could therefore wipe out the fact that I like him because everybody else is going to raise him up now too. But it's a risk. There's some swing and miss. But he's got outstanding play patient. He was prorating to well over 100 walks. It's a, it's a batting average liability, but, man, those counting stats are so sweet. Um, so if I already gave it J.D. Martinez in, in, the, in the fall, add, add Biggio to that. Yeah, and Biggio's killer for uh, on-base leagues, too. Wow, oh, he's sure. such a great candidate. And you know what? I... I suspect that a player this young is going to cut down on the swing and miss because he just has that much talent. You know, he's got kind of half the package you want in taking all these walks. Now, the other half is, like, hit the ball when it's thrown to you kind of thing. And he looked a little overmatched sometimes, but kid's young and it's just the second season. I think there's lots lots of opportunity or lots of potential. Who's a National League hitter you think could be a boon? Yeah, um... You know what I, I had to, I had to double check my rankings and again hand waving rankings what numbers really mean. Starling Marte, and it, it it requires that he stay healthy, not even the full season, that he just stays mostly mostly healthy. 
We mentioned Victor Robles earlier. If you're looking to get steals without sacrificing power, it's 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 Starling Marte. And I I am a borderline first round player, strictly by the rankings. Now here you don't have to take them that high. Uh so it's a matter of playing the chicken with the ADP. But Starling Marte is the guy that I want if I'm addressing steals early. Currently at the 2-3 turn in uh, in NFBC. Over to the mound, uh, a pitcher in the American League who could be a boon. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask for a uh, for a uh, a waiver on this. Anybody with a Texas on their uniform, because I I don't think people will will be taking to the park into into big consideration. I think Lance Lynn's already getting some love. So I'll if you want a particular player, I'll I'll give it to Mike Miner. I think people are expecting Miner pitched over his head. So if you want a name, it's Mike Miner. But in general, give me any of these Texas pitchers. I think the highest ranked one is Corey Kluber. He's going around pick 100, so he's, you're talking about the seventh round. Uh, yeah. Corey Kluber's a good pitcher. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. Uh, the, so the Texas yes. staff and uh, in the National League, who's a boon pitcher? Um, sort of using those same way, even though we talked about Marlins Park uh, giving up a few more homers, I'm not so sure it's going to give it more runs. Uh, I, I, one of those things that's more homers, but I, if you can play a little shallower because the fences are in, are you going to cut off some other stuff? So I like Marlins pitchers. I like uh, Caleb Smith. As, I'll give you the name. Caleb Smith is the one guy, but I like I like Marlins pitchers in general. The offense, I, don't, I mean, they lost a couple players. Or, you know, Castro, they picked up a couple guys, Jonathan Villar, et cetera. I think they'll score a few more runs. So Caleb Smith is the singular name, but I'm a little leaning towards Miami staff in general. Todd Zola's Boons, J.D. Martinez of Boston, Kevin Biggio of Toronto, Starling Marte of Arizona. His pitchers, the entire Texas staff, and uh, Caleb Smith of Miami, also as part of a staff recommendation. Uh, Todd, let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think our listeners should be cautious. Let's start again in the American League with a Bane hitter. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'll get. You know, I'll give. I'm gonna say good credit, but we we talked. We, we talk offline about baseball, and we both agree that Glaber Torres is uh, is being drafted aggressively. And I I maybe it's because people see the second base shortstop eligibility and the Yankees, etc. Talking about average exit velocity, fly ball distance. He was a player that was you know unproportionately helped by the ball. Excellent player. When you say a guy is going to go from 40 to 30 homers, you're not saying he's a bad player. They're just saying there's going to be a drop-off. And I think that Torres is being a little, you know, in my opinion, drafted a little bit too aggressively. In the National League, who's a Bane hitter? And here's another guy we talked about, I believe in Arizona and also offline, Pete Alonso. And here here I, I comes with a small asterisk because, yeah, um, well, you know, I don't even come to the Nationals anymore. I actually, in my profile, I wrote about this. And, you know, Mets fans are passionate. Just look at the last couple of rookies that have hit 50 homers. Aaron Judge, you have to go back to Mark McGuire. There's going to be a drop. It, there's just going to be a drop. And he's being drafted as if it even goes up. The, the small asterisk is his average fly ball distance was huge. So the homers he got... Were just that were supported. I can't say he was lucky. He earned them. Whether he's going to be able to maintain that extravagant of a fly ball distance or not, 
is the question. But I do think I think in, in NFBC too, it's a different ADP. It's a play to win. It's a play to win pick. But I I agree that we were talking in that it, it's being. It, I hate to use the word overdrafted because it's all subjective, but I think he's being overdrafted. Once again, to the mound we go. Who's an American League pitcher you think could be a bane? I think, you know, Shane Bieber. And, I, you know, before Clevenger got hurt, it was so fun to talk, which is, you know, Clevenger-Bieber because they were so close, close, so closely ranked. Bieber's stuff is fantastic, this, that, everything else. Um he gives up hard contact and it hasn't burned him yet, but give me a pitcher with better stuff. I guess it depends how you defend stuff, but give me a more dominant pitcher, better, better fastball uh, than someone who part of their MO is to get away with giving away, getting away hard contact. So that's what worries me about Bieber. Now the corollary to that is, what if he didn't? What if it? What if that was just plain luck and he starts giving up weaker contact? Well, now you have a now you have a top three or four pitcher. So, it, but to me, the, it's the risk involved. I don't want to take down that much risk with where I have to take Shane Bieber. And in the National League, of Bain pitcher. I wasn't aware of this one. We were again talking. We were we were looking at the Tout Wars uh, draft and hold, pointing out that Chris Paddock went in the fourth round. Chris Paddock is a really good pitcher. I don't think he's fourth round good. I know that you know relative to where he's being. I, I think that at this point, people are looking to force pitching because of that. You need pitching. You need pitching. He's a really, really, really good pitcher. But I think he's being part of that group that's being forced higher because of the thought process that if I don't get an ace, if I don't get two aces in the first five rounds, I'm 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 not you know I'm. I'm I'm not going to win, which is a falsehood, but I think he's getting that now. I'm I'm pro Paddock. They're taking the the limit of innings off. I think he's going to, you know, a very good pitcher. He's a guy I wanted to start my staff in the fifth or sixth round, my first pitcher. I don't know that I want him in the fourth round as my second pitcher, and that's what's happening. And I was going to say that uh, part of the pressure that puts guys like Chris Paddock higher in the in the ADPs than maybe we think they should be is that the way drafts have been going, a lot of pitchers are flying off the boards in those first three rounds. And uh, at a certain point, you start looking at the at the situation. And if you don't have a pitcher, then you all of a sudden maybe not panic exactly, but you start thinking, man, I got to start getting some pitchers, and I better start getting them right now. And you look at that sort of range of guys, and you're looking at Kershaw, who's got question marks. You got Paddock, who's got question marks. Uh, Charlie Morton is under Chris Paddock. I'd take Morton out of the three of them, frankly. But right after that, there's Severino. You Darvish is still only at 63. I like him. So there's there are options at that spot. But part of the reason that a lot of pitchers are going to be moving up, I think, is that so. Many of them are going to go off the board earlier than we than we're used to. Oh, absolutely! And this is where I've talked about the past couple of years, and this gets misinterpreted as Zola says, "Don't draft pitching early." I'm saying, "Don't force pitching early." Um, you mentioned Charlie Martin. You funny you mention him. Um, we do an Arizona Fall League speakers draft, and I, you know, this is this is part of the per- why you know sort of pre- practice what I preach. I took Charlie Martin as my first pitcher in the fifth round. So, you know, I kind of, you know, someone like you that, that kind of corroborates, you know, my enthusiasm from, you know, Morton, at least relative to some of these other guys, I would have rather, you know, I, I'm happy 
that I took pitching, I'm sorry, took hitting with my third and fourth pick and not forced one of these pitchers because I'm just as happy to start my staff with Charlie Morton in the fifth than I would be with Chris Paddock or Lucas Giolito in the fourth. And that's what it's going to take. Todd Zola's Baines, Glaber Torres of the Yankees, Pete Alonzo of the Mets, Shane Bieber of Cleveland, Chris Paddock of San Diego. Uh, Todd, before I let you go, uh, what's going on at Masters Ball? What's going on at Masters Ball? We are wrapping up the, you know, the, it, it, Mar, you know, Mark the, got to get my stuff done by March. Launch in November. By the end of February, I want the majority of material out there. So uh, getting the, the, the draft preparation stuff pretty much ready to go. Be launching my drafting tiers soon. Um, travel starts soon. I am going to be putting together an NFPC primer, but the, uh, the, 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 the platinum subscription is, uh, is available as always came out in November. So we've had a lot of tweaking to go along since then, but, um, it's, uh, used by, used by a lot of high stakes player and used in a lot of home leagues. It's, uh, it's, it's a great companion site to a site like HQ. It's, uh, you know, HQ has so much more in-depth articles and analysis, but if you're looking for a, a second opinion, which I think, you know, it doesn't have to be mine, but I think you never want to, never want to pigeonhole yourself into just one, one thing, I don't think, in, in, in anything, let alone fantasy baseball, but I, it's a nice companion site. And tell us where else listeners can read more, hear more from Todd Zola. Oh, absolutely. I'm, so, yeah, I'm, duh. Uh, Twitter, at Todd Zola. And uh, you know, I, I give I give baseball I, I, I tweet baseball, but I, I, I keep it lighthearted. Um, uh, contributing to RotoWire, my once a week piece there. I do podcasting for RotoWire. You mentioned SiriusXM and fantasy baseball, and I will fairly soon start to have some stuff up on ESPN, another one of my uh, freelance contract sites. I'm speaking right now with the editor trying to plan out what what I'll be writing so I'll be having some stuff up on on the uh, on the worldwide leader as it were uh, coming up very soon Todd always great to talk to you thanks very much we'll talk to you again during the season I'm sure absolutely uh, uh, looking forward to it already Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball and Rotowire and appears regularly on Sirius XM and that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 18th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number five of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, and Sirius XM. Todd is a longtime friend and contributor at Baseball HQ Radio and one of the finest baseball analysts in the business. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, or iTunes, Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, well, give us a good review and a rating. It really does help new listeners find the show, which keeps the podcast growing, which keeps the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with our regular news and commentary edition, and the next Tuesday, it's Ron Chandler on another Tuesday Tout edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.